chapter 16, verse 18. A short verse, but incredibly impactful. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Thank you, Pete. Morning, church. We have a tougher topic this morning. It's not one that I think I or the other pastors would have necessarily chosen on our own. But that's one of the benefits of preaching through scriptures week by week is God brings up topics that we get to talk about that he wants us to hear about. And so that's what we get to do this morning. Divorce and remarriage is a hard topic because it affects every one of us in this room at different levels. I remember that when I was growing up, I watched marriages on both sides of my family crumble. And I can see the lingering effects still today, many years later. A handful of us here this morning have grown up in households where your parents divorced. And there's still pain and ramifications as a result of what happened. And still even at another level, there's some of us here this morning who have suffered divorces ourselves and gone through that process. You know, one, one image that comes to mind is divorce is like a rock that if you drop it into the surface of the water, there's ripples that go out in every direction and it keeps having an effect for a long time. So since, since divorce is such a, a, a weighty topic and since marriage is such a weighty topic and has such a big effect on all of us, don't we really want to know what Jesus has to say about it? And I know at worst, first that his words sound very direct and very strong. And he does have strong views about marriage and divorce. But what we're going to see this morning is there's actually a lot of truth and a lot of grace and a lot of mercy for all of us. And we're going to see that we all need that grace and mercy, whether or not we've been through a divorce ourselves or not. So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. Um, as we talk about marriage, it's going to be a picture that points to our Savior. So we hope that you get to know our Savior this morning as you hear about marriage. And also, um, to anyone here who's suffered a divorce and might feel some sort of guilt or shame as I'm speaking to you, please just hang in there because there is abundant mercy wherever we find Jesus. So just to hop into the context, if you remember last week, Pastor Sam was preaching um, on the Pharisees and their love of money. And now in this, in this part of the story, Jesus is disputing with them, saying that your, your standard of righteousness that you think is holy, it's actually an abomination in the sight of God. And, and my standard is much higher than that. As an example, he, I think that's where verse 18 comes in. The Jews in that day, a lot of them tend to have a lax view of marriage and divorce. And it seems like Jesus is saying, my standard is so much higher than your standard, that you are actually sinners who need a Savior. Let me point out one example to you. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. In that context, there was a group of Jewish people who thought that you could divorce your wife if she displeased you in any way, even if she just cooked a meal poorly. And so there's a very low view of marriage among some of the contemporaries in Jesus' day. And that's in in light of that, which um, actually is very similar in our culture today, where marriage is viewed lowly, it's not held in high esteem, Jesus has a very high view of marriage. And that's the view that we get to see right here. So as we walk through this passage and see Jesus' true and firm words about marriage and divorce and also see the grace and mercy that's here, we're going to answer five questions together. We're going to answer the questions, what is marriage? What is divorce? What should I do if I've been divorced? What should I do if I'm married? And what should I do if I'm single? So those are the five questions we're going to answer together. So let's start off with question number one. What is marriage? Now, marriage is the lifelong promise that one man and one woman make to each other, and God binds them together. It's very important. It's one man and one woman, and it's a lifelong promise, and God binds them together. In our culture, in our society, we see other things being called marriage besides that. And throughout history, we've seen other things called marriage besides that. It's important to remember that every other manifestation of marriage besides God's plan is a result of broken sexuality. And every single one of us have broken sexuality. There isn't a group of people with broken sexuality and a group of people without broken sexuality. We all have broken sexuality and it manifests in different ways. And we all need the grace of Jesus. And so the only approach to someone who's struggling with a broken sexuality is to show them the same love and mercy that Jesus showed us. So when we say that the Bible calls marriage an institution between one man and one woman, we say that we do not have any sort of superiority or despising for anyone who has not come to that yet. We have compassion for people who, like us, also have broken sexuality. Marriage is very old. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, which is where we're going to go right now, right now to Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. It says, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up, place, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we go back to this beautiful moment at the beginning of creation where Adam could not find a helper fit for him, someone to complete him. And God creates this beautiful woman who completes him. And it's so amazing that the moment he sees her, he utters the first poem in history of humanity. He says, here's bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh. 
And what we see in the first marriage between Adam and Eve is that they enjoy complete intimacy without shame. That's it. The heart of marriage is complete intimacy without shame. And one thing that we're going to see as we keep walking through the Bible and keep walking through this sermon is that marriage is a picture that points to something higher than itself. Marriage is a picture. And in the garden, as Adam and Eve enjoy complete intimacy without shame, their relationship with each other is actually a picture of their shame-free relationship with God. So their marriage, as beautiful and wonderful as it is in the garden, is pointing to something much higher and greater than that marriage. Which makes it such a horrible tragedy when Adam and Eve sin against God, when they break the marriage covenant and shame is introduced into their relationship with God and they're sent away from the garden. And shame is introduced into their relationship with one another and they have isolation from one another. And ever since then, human beings have continued to marry, but marriage has been a broken thing and has not been the way that it was designed. So maybe you grew up in a broken home, with a hard marriage, and your view of marriage is skeptical, that's not God's plan for what marriage was supposed to be. He has a much higher plan for what marriage is supposed to be. The broken marriages that we experience, church, are a result of the sin and the shame and the pain that our first parents introduced into the world. But even still, even in a fallen world, marriage continued to be a gift, and it continued to point to something higher than itself. It continued to point to the reality that that shame-free relationship with God that was broken in the garden, God was in the business of restoring and renewing it. Every time there's a marriage that takes two people who are apart from one another and binds them together closer than a blood relative, it's a picture of the fact that God is taking people who are utterly estranged and separated from him and binding them into a shame-free relationship with him. I mean, isn't it amazing that someone you've never known as you grew up, you meet, and somehow they become closer than a blood relative? It's a miracle. And it points to the miracle of what God had continued to do throughout the history of the world. We see that when he rescues his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brings them out into the wilderness and has a meal with them and unites with them. There's a lot of clues in the text that he was marrying his people. Here's one of them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, when it's talking about God's relationship with his people, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new marriage with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, here it is, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God saw himself as married to his people. They were faithless to him. And that's why there's this broken relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament, this, just like there was a broken relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And what he does is he promises to make a new and better marriage to his people. I think the worst thing in the world would be being in a broken, separated relationship from God. 
And the best thing ever would be him repairing that relationship and remarrying me as part of his people and allowing me and all of us to live in a perfect union with him forever. And that is exactly what happens when he sends Jesus for us. That is exactly what happens when he sends Jesus for us. Marriage is just a symbol, and Christ is the substance. As significant and beautiful and important as your marriage is to your human partner, it is merely a symbol, like a wedding ring is a symbol of your marriage. Your marriage is a symbol, and the relationship of Christ and his people is the substance. Here's what Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The ultimate thing that, picture, that marriage pictures is Jesus marrying us, his people. And when he marries us, he's paying a bride price for us with his blood and his death. And he's not paying the bride price for a bride that is worthy of being married. We're a sinful people, aren't we? We don't deserve to be in a relationship with Jesus in the least. And he comes and he pays the price so that we can live in a perfect, undying relationship with him forever. When two people get married, they make a promise to each other that we will be married for the rest of our lives. And it's a picture of God's unending faithfulness to us in marriage. The result of that means, and this is where it kind of comes home, is that your marriage points to, to the relationship between Jesus and his people. Which means that every decision, every moment in your marriage matters. Every moment matters in your marriage because it's all a picture pointing to Jesus. So if your marriage is meant to be a pointer and a picture of Jesus, and the picture is marred and distorted. It's making an untrue, low statement about Jesus. So we have a call, church, to defend our marriages. How you talk to your spouse this afternoon as you drive home in the car matters. Because that's part of your marriage pointing to Jesus. How you work through disagreement with your spouse matters. Because that points to and reflects on Jesus. How you work through sin that your spouse commits against you matters because it reflects on Jesus. All of, since all of marriage points to Jesus, all of marriage matters because it's all reflecting on Jesus. So marriage is a shame-free relationship that points to the ultimate shame-free relationship. That's what marriage is. Question two, what is divorce? Divorce is the breaking of those promises and the splintering apart of what God united together. That's divorce. Divorce so wounds the heart of God because it reflects poorly on him. 
Our God is a promise-keeping God who never breaks his promises. So when we break our promises to one another, it wounds his heart because it reflects poorly on him. Now, I just want to give a quick word to those who have suffered a divorce. That not everyone who experiences a divorce is necessarily in sin. Right? There's different divorces and different situations and different reasons why they happen. I wanted to go through them this morning and explain them, like what, what, what kind of situation is it maybe allowable? What kind of situation is it not? And we just don't have time for that this morning. So we are going to do a podcast this week and invite everyone to tune in who wants to know more about how do I think through different divorces. But um, this morning, we're going to talk more about just the value of marriage in general and just focus on what this verse is saying. And if you want to know more about some specific situations, please tune in. Returning from that side note, in divorce, we see false communication about God because God never breaks his promise. And in many divorces, we break our promises. So often, this pain manifests the most in children of divorce who were learning from their parents what a promise-keeping God is like, and that image was broken for them. And so often, children of divorce can struggle to trust God because their parents did not keep their promises to each other. And I believe, church, that because of the devastating effects of divorce on the couples who divorce, upon their children, and upon their communities, is one reason why Jesus holds marriage so highly and says this verse. So Jesus' firmness in marriage and his firmness against divorce is actually part of his goodness to us. He's against something that's utterly against us, and that's part of love. So when Jesus is against divorce, it's not because he's trying to shame or belittle any of us. It's because he cares about us and knows that divorce is deadly and wants us not to ever go down that road. So church, if your marriage or if marriage points to the character of God and divorce misrepresents his character, if divorce hurts other people's views of God, especially the children of divorced parents, And if God takes marriage promises so seriously that he calls breaking those promises adultery, then what is our proper response? The only proper response is that we must fight for our own marriages and the marriages of other people in our community. Our main point this morning is we must fight for our marriages because they all point to Jesus. And I didn't say fight for your marriage. I said we fight for our marriages. So part of joining a church means you're no longer living the Christian life on your own, which means you're no longer staying married on your own. We need to fight for our marriages because all our marriages point to Jesus. So that's question two. What is divorce? Question three. What if I've been divorced? What if I've been divorced? So before I explain how we need to fight together for our marriages, I want to address a group of people who are certainly here this morning, those who have gone through a divorce. 
As I mentioned before, please tune into our podcast if you're wanting to know more about how to think through different situations. But before going any further, I want to mention that as weighty of a thing as it is to be divorced from a human partner, it's a weightier thing to be divorced from our creator. And every single one of us here, whether or not we've been divorced from our human partner, has a divorce problem because we were born in a state of having been divorced from our heavenly creator. So to have gone through a divorce does not put you more in the category of sinner in need of a savior than anyone else. Does not put you in that category more than anyone else because every one of us were born in a state of divorce from the God we need to be in union with. Here's what Ephesians 2.12 says. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Hear this, having no hope and without God in the world. If you've been divorced before, it is good to feel a sense of sorrow and conviction over that. But you should not feel a sense of overwhelming despair or guilt. You should not, especially because Jesus is in the picture. As weighty as the sin of being divorced from your human partner is, and as weighty of the sin of being divorced from our God is, neither of those things are weightier than the blood of Jesus. Neither of them are. Jesus died so that these hopeless situations can become completely forgiven and reconciled. If you've been divorced, you are not without hope if you are with Jesus. Far better, far better to even have committed this sin and have Jesus than to not commit it and not have him. Here's what Ephesians 5.25 says. So it's talking about marriage, the picture of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. If you've had a divorce and you come to Jesus, he's cleansed you with the washing of water and the word, which means you're not dirty anymore. And you can leave that shame and guilt at the cross and flee to him and feel forgiven and healed this morning. And if you haven't had a divorce, you can do the exact same thing for all the 10,000 other sins that are in your life and my life. It is the death of Jesus that makes us clean. Not getting a divorce is not what makes us clean. When Jesus goes to the cross, he pays the bride price for us. So on another note, some of us might be wondering, so what does that mean then if I've divorced someone and I'm married to another and Jesus is calling that adultery? What does that mean? What I would say is that we're going to go further into that topic and discuss what situations constitute that. But I will mention that if you're wondering if that's the state that I'm in, have, have I, am I committing this thing that Jesus called adultery? The first thing to do is to flee to Jesus. Like I said, he forgives every sinner who comes to him. And there isn't a single sin that he won't forgive. 
The other thing is you might be wondering, well, am I supposed to stay with this person if Jesus calls that adultery? And I would only say to that, the way to respond to breaking one promise is not to break another promise. If you're married to someone today and you feel like you have a sin in your past, what I would say to you is take that to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and just keep living as you are, trusting that he'll make up in every way that you and I have failed. That's the path forward, trusting that he succeeds where we fail and just continuing to live life in the station he's put us in. So that's question two. Question, I forgot what number I'm on. Four, thank you, Pete. Question four. What should I do if I'm married? Okay, what should I do if I'm married? So I want to speak to those who are currently married, and I want to give some exhortations for how we can fight for our marriages. Now, when I give these exhortations, you might be thinking, man, Pastor Ross must think all of our marriages are on the rocks and about to split up. That is not what I think at all. I don't think that at all. I look at a lot of our marriages, and I am in awe of how beautiful they are. And praise God for that. I just want to just lay some basic foundations and defenses so that when things get tough and when the evil one tries to split up your marriage, we're fully fortified for battle. Okay, number one. Resolve never to divorce your spouse as long as it is within your power. I just want to remind you who are married this morning that you made a lifelong promise before God and before others to the person you're married to. And I just want to call you in the context of our community and by the grace of God to keep that promise no matter what. I fully believe that 30 years from now, If we live by the grace of God and we keep our promises seriously, there could be zero divorces of the marriages in this room right here. That is very possible. So I just want to call and challenge us, if you're married today, to re-resolve in your heart never to divorce your spouse as long as it is within your power. There are certain exceptions where it's dangerous or things like that come up, and those would require more counsel. But generally speaking, resolve never to divorce your spouse. Two, repent of any fantasies you've had to not be married to the person you're married to or to be married to someone else. No one just wakes up one morning and thinks, man, I'm going to get a divorce. We start taking steps towards divorce in our hearts before we ever do in life. So if you have any fantasy about not being married to the person you're with or being married to somewhere else, I just call you today to put that to death. To cut divorce off at the source by putting those thoughts to death. I promise you, the reason you're married to the person you're married to is because God wanted you to be married to them. And there's no better There's no better person for you to be married to because you're married to them. So don't try to come up with some imaginary situation in your mind. Instead, just put that to death and maybe pray for your marriage instead. (laughs) 
Maybe instead of imagining being married to someone else, pray for your marriage instead and see what the Lord does. Three. This is a big one. Restore the cycle of love and respect in your marriage. Restore the cycle of showing love and respect in your marriage. Even if the other person isn't. So both couples need love and respect in a marriage from the other person. In Ephesians, which we were talking about, it is, talks about husbands especially showing love to the wife, their wives and wives especially showing respect to their husbands. And so often when that cycle is interrupted, when one person stops showing that to the other person, the married couple starts to drift away from each other. But a Christian marriage is different than a worldly marriage. A Christian marriage is different than a worldly marriage. In a worldly marriage, someone says, I show love and respect to my spouse because they show love or respect to me. That's, that's the worldly marriage. So you could see how that marriage would be in huge problems if one person stopped showing love and respect. In a Christian marriage, instead you say, I show love and respect to the other person because Jesus showed love and respect to me when I didn't deserve it. So even when the other person isn't showing love and respect to you, Jesus already did so that you're able to do that. Christian marriages are supernatural because our power doesn't come from within our marriage. It comes from without our marriage, from Jesus, because he already showed us those things. So if you're in a marriage this morning and you don't feel loved or respected by your spouse, I just want to call you to love and respect your spouse. Like Christ loved and respected me and loved and respected you even when we weren't loving or respecting him. And I do think that this burden is fully on both couples in the marriage. But I just want to speak to the men right now. Men as, as leaders in the marriage. As those who symbolize in the Christ, in the Christ church relationship, the men, the man symbolizes the leader I just want to call you to especially reignite this process right now in your marriage if it's growing cold. To especially step forward and sacrifice yourself so that the mutual exchange of love and respect can begin again in your marriage. Now I want to move on to the singles. Okay. What should I do if I'm single? So if you are single, I have three exhortations for you because we're in a community and we're fighting for each other's marriages. We're just not fighting for our own marriages or letting other people fight for their own marriages. We're fighting together for marriages. What are three things that you can do to serve others? One, I would say connect with married couples. It takes married couples being open to this and Married couples aren't always open to this, but I would call married couples to be open to this. But singles, please try to connect with married couples. You cannot serve, speak, or help married couples if you don't know them. And I just want to invite married couples to open up your homes and open up your lives to singles who will be able to serve and help your marriage. Don't believe the lie that a single person doesn't have valuable contributions that can help your marriage because they've never been married. That's false. 
Singles, what's another thing you can do? Two, pray for marriages. I was just convicted by this. I don't think I pray about other people's marriages in our community nearly as much as I should. If marriages are a picture of Christ and his church, then won't the enemy be out to destroy that picture? So shouldn't I be praying for your marriages? So if you're not married yet, one thing you can do to fight for the marriages in our communities is to hold them up in prayer. Number three, speak into other marriages when you can. So as you get to know married couples, as you do life with them, get to know their kids, there will be opportunities where you can speak into the conflict that other married couples are going through to help them process through those things and grow. And married couples, it takes a lot of humility sometimes to share this with someone who's not married, but I would encourage you to do that so you don't cut yourself off from a valuable lifeline. I remember one time I had friends from college who were married and fighting about whether or not they should have kids, and they honored me by allowing me to speak into that conflict. And I was able, by God's grace, to help share some wisdom with them. And so I would just say, married couples, please be open to hearing from the singles about how you can grow in your marriage. One final word to the singles. As a single person, you are not incomplete. And you are very useful to this community and to the Lord. I said before that marriage, before, marriage is just a symbol and Christ has the substance. You might not have marriage, but if you have Christ, you have the thing that marriage is pointing to. So if you lose your wedding ring, but you still have your spouse, would you despair or be upset? I mean, you would, but... <laughs> but you still go on, and you still love that person, and they still love you, and you guys would still do great things for the Lord. So don't stop doing great things for the Lord because you're not married. You have the thing that marriage is pointing to. Marriage ultimately points forward to the day that Jesus will marry his people. And I would prefer to remain single every single day of my life if I got to be a part of that marriage. Which, if you are a single person and you are in Christ, you're more married than a married person will ever be somehow. So don't be discouraged this morning. So church, because our marriages are pointers to Jesus, because they're about more than us, because they're about Jesus, let's encourage us to fight, to fight to preserve our marriages and fight to preserve the marriages in our community. Let's pray together. Jesus.